All right, Psalm 86 is where we pick up this evening, and we see Psalm 86 once again as a Psalm of David. We haven't seen many of the Psalms of David in this third of what makes up five books uh, of the Psalms. The Psalms are actually broken into five uh, different uh, books, and we're in the third of those three books now. We haven't seen one from David in a little while, but we come to another one. And the backdrop of this psalm, we aren't exactly sure what uh, time period of David's life it was specifically. It could have fit a number of different occasions. One indication we have of something that was going on, we're told in verse 14 here of Psalm 86, that David prays, O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set you before them. So one of the things we can tell is that this was a time in David's life where he was being hassled by particular individuals who did not share his belief in the Lord, who were mistreating him. So again, this could fit itself in the context of the time when David, remember, was wandering around the Judean wilderness, in caves, and in the forest of Ziph, and was kind of living like a refugee during that time when he was the anointed king of Israel but not yet the reigning king of Israel. And remember, Saul and his armies were chasing David around and were kind of hunting him down, trying to put him to death. So that could be a reference to that time period when some of these things were going on and David was articulating this prayer to the Lord. Could also be a time period when David experienced the rebellion of his son Absalom, if you remember, the very hardship that was for David as well, that after David was reigning on the throne and his own son Absalom sought to overthrow his father and to usurp the throne from him and brought about a lot of deceitful activities and there was a lot of hurt that came towards him as a father and a lot of intrigue among the family and some real painful things that caused David for a time period to have to deal with some real hardships, not only in his own family and among the relatives, but also just in his role of trying to balance what he was to do with whether he was to try and take a firm stand on the throne or kind of step away for a time and let God sort some of those pieces out. Uh, We can't be certain. There are many of different times I think this could fit into the context of David's life. And quite honestly, uh, and sometimes I think it's good that God doesn't identify that because if he does identify something, then sometimes we have a tendency to then read the word of God and exclusively only want to take that as they're pertaining to, oh, it's only in these situations that that actual truth of God or that promise of God comes to pass. That's one of the reasons I'm so glad in the New Testament where Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll see, talks about the thorn in his flesh. And he says it's a messenger of Satan that was also there to buffet him. The idea is he was already dealing with a painful situation. And then there was the lying voice, some messenger of Satan always in his ear, sort of condemning him and making him feel worse, kind of punching him in the gut when he was already down. But Paul doesn't identify what that thorn in the flesh was. And I think in some ways that's a really good thing, because if it was uh, migraine headaches or if it was whatever it was as a physical affliction, it was some affliction in Paul's life that was painful, that was persistent that he had pleaded with the Lord that he would remove the difficulty from his life, but yet Jesus did not remove it. He said instead, Paul, my grace will be sufficient for you. And my power is gonna be made perfect or manifest and shown strong to you in the midst of your weakness. In other words, what you think is hindering you is actually helping you. This difficulty, this hardship, it's actually letting you experience greater measures of my grace. And I'm glad that we're not told what Paul's thorn was because then... When we have something going on in our life, 
And we need to apply those truths and scriptures and that word from Jesus. If Paul told us exactly what it was, oh, well, I'm not having the same health issue as Paul, so I can't really relate to that. But the fact that God leaves it general and doesn't always fill in details, I think in some ways lets us personalize the word of God. You know, I believe it was Warren Wearsby said years ago in great truth to it. He said, always read your Bible in the present tense. And I think there's great truth to that. Certainly, we should study the word of God in context and understand what's there, interpret it accurately. But the word of God is a living book. It is God-breathed. It is spirit-inspired. And so, therefore, it has a present tense communication to our hearts. And so when you read your Bible, yes, read it with your head, study to show yourself approved, but don't ever stop reading it with your heart. Always read it in the present tense. And let those phrases or those statements, sometimes it's even just a few words, just come off the page. And that's it, Lord. That was exactly what I needed to hear for exactly what I'm going through right now. And, and there's something very wonderful about doing that. And so David's in the time of a hardship. We know that. He's going through personal difficulty. Maybe you're going through some difficulties right now. Maybe some of this prayer of David you can directly relate to. You notice he begins in verse 1 by crying out for the Lord's compassion to help him in the midst of his hardship, knowing that God is compassionate. Notice he begins Psalm 86, verse 1, this prayer of David. He says, bow down your ear, O Lord, and hear me, for I am poor and needy. So it's almost as if you can tell David is aware that God knows everything that's going on. He knows God is a good supervisor over his creation. God's a good ruler over the earth and over all humanity that he created and he loves and he cares about, not just people, but you know, Jesus talks about even the birds of the air. God knows when one of them fall to the ground. God knows what's going on with the grass of the field. So again, God takes care of all of his creation, but David realizes that God is also a very compassionate, loving father. That though he's a great king, Though he's awesome in the same way that he's a God of great compassion. David's going to speak about that later in the Psalms. So notice he says, and you notice a lot of the personal pronouns. David personalizes this. And this is what we admire about David is he had this very tender connection to God as a man. And again, as a man who was extremely masculine. I mean, David was a warrior. He was one of those, you don't want to get in hand to hand with him. He'd twist your head off in a second. I mean, this was a tough guy. But yet this guy that was very tough also had a very tender relationship with the Lord. And he shows that both can exist in a person. He says, Lord, Lord, bow down your ear. Lord, bow down your ear right where I'm at. Lord, I'm trying to talk to you about something. I know you got a lot of people talking to you all around the earth. But Lord, can I have your ear for a minute? Lord, I'm directly dialing you. Would you bow down your ear to me? Hear me, he says, Lord, for I am poor and needy. Notice David says, Lord, I need you to hear because he says uh, in a very humble way about himself, I am poor and needy. The idea of poor means I'm lacking. Lord, I don't have sufficient for what I need. I realize there's lack in my life. I don't have the resources that I need personally. Lord, I'm lacking. And he says, I'm needy. The idea is, Lord, I require help. I'm lacking and I require help. Now, if you can't relate to that, you're not an honest person tonight. That's an expression of humility. David says there, I am poor and I'm needy, Lord. I recognize I don't have sufficient what's necessary to be able to handle my situation or to get through day by day. So, Lord, he's saying, 
please help. I'm, I'm in this situation. And, you know, Jesus seems to indicate that this is something that God actually admires when he sees inside the soul of a person and even is attracted to. Remember, Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The idea of those who recognize the poverty of their own inward condition. Those who realize I am so bankrupt inside. You know, we just sang that song. One of the lyrics, one of the songs you're singing tonight resonated with this very reality. You know, Lord, I'm broken inside. And this is the idea. Lord, I am bankrupt. I, I don't have what it takes to do what is right, Lord. I am poor in spirit. And Jesus said, those are the one to whom the kingdom of God belongs. Not those who think that they're okay, think they're so strong or self-righteous, but those instead who realize I am bankrupt inside, man. I need help. I need help from God. I am bankrupt. And he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And again, that idea there in Matthew 5, Jesus is talking about mourning over your condition. That is, you're actually sad about your condition. And he says, when you mourn over your own condition before God and you realize you're bankrupt inwardly, that's something he says that God actually honors. Because God delights in pride and God resists, uh, delights, excuse me, in humility, but he resists pride. So David here, in his humble expression, Lord, I'm poor and needy. Give me your ear, help me. And then he begins to cry out, verse two, preserve my life, he says, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Now, again, over in verse 14, you could tell David's dealing with difficulty because in verse 14, he said, the proud have risen against him. A mob of violent men have sought my life. So David's saying this legitimately, preserve my life. He says, Lord, the idea is, Lord, don't let me be destroyed. Lord, unless you keep me alive, I'm gonna get ruined. Unless you somehow bring preservation and protection and keep me I'm done. It's the only way I'm going to get through this, Lord, is if you preserve me. He's not saying, Lord, I can protect myself. I can defend myself. I can keep myself safe and strong and stable. David's saying, there's no way I can keep myself. Never going to happen, Lord. I need your preserving power to be at work in my life or I'm going to be destroyed or ruined. And, you know, I think to some degree, all of us, if that's not true in some way physically that we're threatened, that is certainly true in our lives spiritually and, you know, mentally and emotionally, that there are a lot of things that can potentially be ruinous in our lives. And we need the preserving power of the Lord to be at work in our lives. When I went in and presented the, uh, the basic class that I'm doing for the seniors at the Atlantic Christian High School that I talked about a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning. The way I presented the class to them was I went in and I said to them, look, if, if I were uh, you know, going to take a self-defense class, what would be the benefit of that? And, and when I said that to them, you know, I, they kind of looked at me with a blank stare. And I said, that's a real question. And one guy raised his hand and he said, well, it would keep you from getting beat up. And I said, correct, right, that's the idea there. It, it would keep someone from harming me. It would, it would be a way for me to protect myself and to guard myself. And I said, look, I think honestly, the greatest threat to every one of our lives in this room, and I was talking to the 13 young men who are seniors, I said, probably the greatest threat to all of our lives of harm is not from somebody outwardly attacking us. It's that we're our own worst enemy. And probably the greatest threat to all of our lives in this room, I said, as men, is our own self-destructive tendencies like our pride and our anger and our lust and all of the things within us 
that we can tend to allow at times to sabotage in the ruins. Those things that become our enemies, those are the things that become, you know, like a mob of, of things violently trying to seek our life and destroy us. And David here, he says, Lord, this mob's trying to get me, and there are things that could ruin us as well. And so that prayer, Lord, preserve my life. Please, Lord, don't let me be ruined. And notice he says why. He says, for I am holy. And the idea that a holy means not necessarily perfect or uh, you know sinless or guiltless the context there i am holy is the idea is lord i am set apart that's what the word holiness in essence means anyway to be set apart for a specific purpose god is holy in the sense that he's wholesome pure he's set apart god is set apart from everything else that's how the essence of what it means that god is holy there is creator and then there's everything created god's set apart he is distinctly set apart and so when we seek to be holy as God's holy, the idea is that we're living set apart, but we're living set apart, how? To serve God instead of being self-serving. And that's what's self-destructive in our lives, right? So he says, Lord, I am set apart. You're my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Lord, I am set apart to serve you. I've chosen to do that much, Lord. I've chosen to set my life apart to not serve myself or not serve the ways of the world, but to serve you. So Lord, as I set myself apart to serve you as your servant, trusting you, please, he says, would you, would you preserve me by your power? Keep me from being ruined. He then cries out, verse three, and be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Notice the continuous prayer going on. He says, I'm crying out to you, Lord, all day long. I need your mercy. Rejoice, he says, the soul of your servant. Of course, the soul being the inward man. And he says, Lord, my soul can get downcast. So please, Lord, would you keep rejoicing the soul of your servant? Keep restoring joy back into the soul of your servant so I don't get overly depressed or discouraged or fall into the trap of self-pity and things that could, again, just make us many times go off course. We get into our own head. So he says, Lord, please keep my soul in a right condition. For to you, O Lord, he says, I lift up my soul. I, I present my inward life to you. Verse five, for you, Lord, he says, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. You notice this theme of uh, the psalmist, it seems these last few psalms continuing to bring up this concept of the goodness of God. We saw in Psalm 84 there where it tells us in Psalm 84 regarding God, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 85, the next Psalm we saw last week, Psalm 85, 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. So no good thing will God withhold. The Lord will give what is good. And now here again in this next Psalm, three Psalms consecutively, we have another reference, Lord, you are good. That God by nature is good, he's benevolent, he's kind, he's, he, he's wanting to do what's best for us. And notice one of the greatest things that David saw regarding the goodness of God, verse 5. I mean, you could think of many things, but he said, Lord, you are good. And he goes right to his main concern, ready to forgive. <laughs> David said, Lord, that's one of the things about you that is, is more good than anything else about you that you are ready to forgive. It describes the nature of God. Notice, it, you know, a lot of times we can tend to think sometimes because of our experiences with people, almost like that God's reluctant to forgive sometimes. 
So we blow it or we mess up or we feel really guilty about some mistakes we've made or who we were in our past or our present struggles. And we all kind of, kind of in our own head start to think, well, we must kind of, kind of work ourselves a little bit back into good graces with God. So if we can kind of get some things back on track and try and start cleaning ourselves up, then maybe God will be a little less reluctant. And okay, then maybe ultimately, all right, all right, I'll, I'll, I think I'm willing to forgive you now. I think I'm ready to forgive you now. And see, people do that, right? People can be kind of reluctant to forgive sometimes. They kind of, you know, they hedge, they hold out a little bit, and, and they don't give immediate, automatic, complete, free forgiveness because we're selfish and we're unkind and we're not always like God. And sometimes we translate that over to God, but the Bible says of God, Nehemiah 9 tells us that he's ready to pardon. Here we read the Holy Spirit say that part of him being good is that he's ready to forgive. He's not reluctant. He's actually the exact opposite. He always is ready. The idea is he is always interested about providing forgiveness, that when we acknowledge our sin, when we confess our sin to him, the Bible says he is a faithful and just basis to forgive us, especially now because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And how wonderful tonight to know that we serve a God who's abundant in mercy to all who call upon him. Not just merciful, abundant in mercy. So when you blow it, You don't have to play the whole mental game in your head and go through all the emotional gymnastics and all the spiritual warfare and let the condemning voice of the devil make you wallow in self-pity and and think that God knows. He's ready to forgive. As soon as you sin, he's ready to forgive. He just wants you to turn to him. Just acknowledge it and by faith, not how you feel, by faith, just receive his forgiveness. Let him cleanse the guilt. Let him remind you that he loves you and move forward being thankful that he is that kind of a good God who's ready to forgive. And honestly, like father, like son, right? If we have the spiritual DNA of God within us, then more and more we should start to reflect God, which means more and more we should become people who are ready to forgive more quickly and less reluctant to forgive in the way that we relate to one another is when you know, sins and offenses happen that we would be people ready to forgive as our father is. Verse six, he says, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you for you will answer me. Again, notice the personal pronouns David's using here multiple times, verse six and seven, give ear to my prayer. Attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you and you will answer me. He says, God, you're not just a a, a generic king who grants the requests of people. He sees God in this very personal way where he says, Lord, in the day of my trouble, my trouble. When you're in a troublesome time in your life, in in a troublesome situation, how wonderful it is to experience the, the, the loving faithfulness of God to you in a personal way. I hope you have experienced times in your life when you pray very sincere, individual, specific prayers. Lord, hear me. I, Lord, please, would you do this? Would you just, and then you see God do it and you realize, oh my goodness, that wasn't just like a generic prayer, like, Lord, bless my day. I'm just, just, Lord, bless my day. We pray a generic prayer like that. And then we wonder as the day goes on, Lord, that's what you call a blessed day. That was a miserable day. But when you pray specific prayers sometimes in an individual way and you see God actually do it, that's the kind of stuff that really awakens your attention to the love of God 
and that he's kind and that he hears and that he's personal and that he actually attends to your voice. You know, here we are, this little speck of dust on earth. We seem so insignificant, but yet to God, you're incredibly important. And that you ask something specific and personal. And in the day of your trouble, as you call upon him, he answers you. You say, man, he answered me. It's incredible, man. He answered me. He actually heard exactly what I prayed and did. That very personal thing is a personal experience for you. Verse 8, he says, among the gods, Lord, and he begins to praise the Lord now. He says, he says, among you, the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you and shall glorify your name. Now, David was saying that in a generic sense in his day. And that began to happen as people were drawn to the God of Israel and as Israel became the light to the nations to the degree that they were for a time period. But that ultimately is even true prophetically because the Bible tells us in the Old Testament prophecies that one day all nations will flood to Jerusalem where Jesus will be reigning and all nations will come and worship him. The scriptures tell us even around the throne of God, every tribe and tongue and nation is worshiping God and glorifying God and how wonderful to, to recognize that reality that again, that, that people from all nations come and will worship God together and glorify his name. He says, verse 10, Lord, for you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. And notice the present tense there, verse 10, Lord, you are great and you do wondrous things. He doesn't say you've done wondrous things. Now that's true too, right? The Lord's done wondrous things. I'm sure in this room tonight, if you were to take a little bit of injuries, man, there are a couple times when the Lord has done some pretty wonderful things for me. But David says here, Lord, you do wondrous things. In other words, Lord, you still do wondrous things today. Even as you parted Red Seas and took down the walls of Jericho and, and did incredible miracles when you walked on this earth in a body of flesh. And Lord, you, 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 you set people free from diseases and people who were paralyzed miraculously received strength and their bodies were recovered. People who were demon possessed and were out of their minds, Jesus would set them free. And it literally says they would be back in their own right mind and he would cast demons out of people. And, and here the Bible says he doesn't just hasn't he just done wondrous things he still does you do wondrous things he's the present tense god he's the great i am and david in his day said lord you even in my life right now are doing wondrous things and the same could be true of you and i we can believe and trust the same that he will do wondrous things for you and i as well and david in light of this wants to understand god's will not his own he says so teach me your way O lord and i will walk in your truth Unite my heart to fear your name. So, Lord, because you're so great, because you do such wondrous things and you've attended to my prayers, Lord, it makes me want to serve you. David wanted to serve out of gratitude. And so here you can see him asking that. Notice what he says, verse 11. Lord, he says, teach me your way. Lord, I don't want to go in my way. I know what my way's like. David knew, just like all the rest of us, what our way was like. And he says, I don't want, I don't want to do my way. I know my way. It's always the wrong way. Lord, teach me your way. Teach me your way to do life. Teach me your way to conduct myself, your way, the path you have for me. I don't want my way. I don't want the world's way. Lord, teach me your way. Teach me your way, Lord. And how do we learn his way? 
It's by learning what his truth is. He says, if you teach me your way, I will walk in your truth. You know, here's one of the best ways that God can teach you his way. If you continue to study the word of God and let the truth of God's word be a lamp for your feet and a light for your path, and you walk according to the word of God and let it govern over your life and direct your thoughts, it's one of the most wonderful ways for God to be able to teach us his way so that we can then walk in his truth. And see, there's the obedience part. God can teach us his way, but we have to walk in his truth. We have to choose to take steps and walk out in his truth rather than walk in the path of error. And he says, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Bring my heart into alignment with a reverence towards you that things would be better to serve you and things are going to become worse if I disregard you and your authority over my life. And he says, verse 12, and I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I have that underlined because I don't want to praise God with half a heart. Right? We don't want to do anything with half a heart. We should do anything. If we're going to do it. You know, it's, it's worth doing well. It's worth doing right. Well, how much more true when we praise and worship the Lord? We're not mumbling a song or just kind of half you know, distracted thinking, but that we praise the Lord with a whole heart, that we're fully engaged with all of our passions. I will praise you with all my heart, and I will glorify your name, he says, forevermore lord you're worthy of my worship with all the passion and the enthusiasm i can muster for great is your mercy toward me and you have delivered my soul from the depths of sheol from the depths of sheol again sheol remember was the place of the dead as the old testament saints understood it and so david says here lord you've delivered my soul from the darkest deepest place of, of the departure of the dead. And again, David said, Lord, if there's nothing else I can praise you for, certainly I can praise you for delivering my soul, for delivering my soul. And you know, for all of us, that gives us great reason, no matter how good or bad of a season of life we're in, if you know Jesus Christ and he has delivered your soul from the depths of hell, then there is a reason to praise him with a whole heart and to glorify his name. If he's delivered your soul, he says again, verse 14, referring to what was happening. Oh, God, the proud have risen against me and a mob of violent men. They've sought my life. And if they've not set you before them, but then he shows the contrast. But you, Lord, people are bad. David knew that. We know that we're part of the bad in every party in humanity. Right, Lord, people are treating me really bad. And we experience that sometimes. He says, but you, Lord, you're so different. Oh, Lord, God. You are full of compassion. You're gracious. You're long-suffering. The idea is to suffer long and to still continue to not be angry, just to patiently endure. And you're abundant in mercy and truth. I mean, that is a mouthful, but that's just some of the descriptive things that came to David's mind as he thought about God in contrast to people. And he said, you know, God, when I look sometimes at how bad people can be among humanity, it just makes how good you are all the more obvious. It just comes to the surface. He says, but you, Lord, in contrast, full of compassion, you're so gracious and long-suffering and merciful and, and trustworthy and reliable and true. Interesting, when you look at David's description there, it sounds a lot like Exodus 34, where the Lord revealed himself to Moses, and the same revelation was given to Moses. So you know, I wonder if in some ways the reason why David could say such things about God was because David was reading his Bible. 
because David knew the word of God and he knew the book of Exodus and he knew what Moses had experienced when he had his own encounter with God. David knew such things to be true about God as well. And so it's knowing the word of God oftentimes that helps us keep that right perspective about the goodness of God and what his nature is like. He says, verse 16, oh, turn to me, Lord, have mercy on me, give strength to your servant, save the son of your maidservant, Lord, I'm weak, he says. I remember he said, I'm poor and needy, Lord, I don't have the endurance or the strength in myself to do this. So he's saying, Lord, would you give, notice he says, your strength. To your servant, not just give strength, Lord, give me your strength. Now, I don't know about you. If the Lord gave me strength in my own weakness, that would be great. But if if he's going to give me his strength, that's some pretty incredible power, right? And that's the idea. That's why the Bible says with God, nothing will be impossible. Flip over that coin. On the other side of it, there's another Bible verse. It says with God, all things are possible. So on this side, it says, with God, nothing will be impossible. The other side says, with God, all things are possible. What's the key? The one word, with. With. With God. If our lives are together with God and we're receiving his strength, and David says, Lord, give your strength to your servant, then I'll be able to do this. And how wonderful to know that as we stay connected to God, he is willing to not just give us strength, but get his very divine power, his strength as almighty God to us as his servant. Verse 17, he says, and show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. I love that little statement there. David makes the beginning of verse 17. It's underlined in my Bible. He says, show me a sign for good. Lord, I know you are good, right? He said that in the last few Psalms, but now he's saying, Lord, could you just give me some small indication that you're at work in some good way? Lord, just, just some small indication, just some sign. You know, I think sometimes our, when our heart is in a right place, not that we're demanding God, but just as a humble servant before our Lord, can, can you just give me some sign, Lord? Just give me some sign of your good work. Just something, Lord. Show me a sign for good. Just, you know, that our heart may be encouraged. Okay, Lord, thank you for letting me see that. It may not be everything I wanted to see. It may not be everything I want to come to pass. It may not be the full work of God's goodness in that situation yet, but just some sign for good. Sometimes those can be some of the greatest encouragements. Lord, show me a sign for good, he says, so that my enemies can be ashamed because it will be evident that you have helped me in my situation. Psalm 87 is a psalm about God's special, it seems, regard and love for the city of Jerusalem. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah, and it tells us this. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Remember, Zion was a reference really to kind of a set of hills where Jerusalem actually sits, the city. More than all the dwellings of Jacob. So the Lord loves the, the, the gates of Zion. The idea is you said the gates of the city of Jerusalem more than all the dwellings, than all locations in the uh, land of Israel. Jacob's another name for Israel. Glorious things are spoken of you, he says, O city of God. He refers to Jerusalem as the city of God there. He says, verse 4, And I will make mention of Rahab, and that's a term at times used synonymously with Egypt, so he's referring to the land of Egypt and to the land of Babylon, 
of those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there, that is born in the city of Jerusalem, a special reference to this blessing of being born there in the city of Jerusalem. And of Zion, or Jerusalem, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there, both the singers and players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. So the psalmist here is drawing attention to the reality that God, by his divine you know, sovereign decision has chosen to put special favor not only upon the land of Israel itself, where his chosen people, the Jews, who he's bringing his you know, redemptive plan through, that not only is God's special favor upon the land of Israel, yet even greater regard, the psalmist draws attention to here, has God put upon the city of Jerusalem itself. He refers to the city of Jerusalem here in verse 3 as the city of God, the idea is, you know, this glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. You know, one of the reasons God has such special regard for the city of Jerusalem is because we understand biblically is the center of God's redemptive work. And all of his redemptive purposes and plans flow through that geographic location of the city of Jerusalem. Think about it. God is outside of time and eternity, and he's bringing about timeless eternal plans but yet the reality is regarding redemption and all of God's work, God had to select a physical location on this planet for his purposes to unfold from. And God chose that to be Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in Second Chronicles chapter 6 these things. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who's fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, listen, since the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet, God declares, Second Chronicles 6, 6, yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I've chosen David to be ruler over my people Israel. So God says, of all the locations geographically on planet Earth, I have chosen Jerusalem. This special city, this city of God where God's redemptive work would unfold. And think of just all the special things that have transpired in the city of Jerusalem, just to mention a few of why the psalmist here says, glorious things are spoken of you, he says, verse 3, O city of God. I mean, in Jerusalem is where Abraham there prior to the time of it even being called that as a capital city of Israel, it's there that Abraham offered up Isaac, which was a perfect type and foreshadowing of how God would offer his one and only son, and he wouldn't reserve and stop the process. He would go forward and actually sacrifice and put to death his own son in providing redemption, even as Abraham and Isaac sort of portrayed. In Jerusalem is where the greatest king of Israel, David, reigned and prospered and where it became then the capital city of the nation of Israel. In Jerusalem is where the tabernacle and the temple, remember, was set up, and that's where God's presence was manifest. His literal presence on the earth was manifest from the house of God there in Jerusalem. It's where the sacrifices were offered. It's where blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. 
in Jerusalem is where Jesus then in the New Testament attended feasts and participated in things in the temple and did great ministry works. In Jerusalem is where Jesus died, where Jesus was buried, where Jesus resurrected from the dead. In Jerusalem is where the church, you might say, was birthed and launched because they're at Pentecost. That's where the Holy Spirit fell upon the New Testament church in Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where Jesus will return one day in his second coming and set up his earthly throne to rule and reign during the kingdom age for a thousand years where he comes back. So no wonder the psalmist says glorious things are spoken of you, he says, O city of God. And why there's something so special and neat, unique, he says. So blessed is the one who is, he says, born there. And of Zion or Jerusalem, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High established her and will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. See, in in history, many wonderful things have been done in Jerusalem. And, And even going forward, we know. Glorious future things are still to happen in Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 and Zechariah 14 describe how all nations will flood to Jerusalem as Jesus returns and sets up his throne there and worship will happen among all the nations. And even as a privilege he's describing here to have been born there, you might say naturally, that the Lord actually recorded, and verse 6 says he registered those born there, In a greater way, you might fairly say, even as Jerusalem was the mother of all the Jews and God registered and recorded the privilege of those born by the city of Jerusalem geographically and and physically, the Bible tells us that Jerusalem is also this beautiful analogy of the heavenly Jerusalem, of the new Jerusalem that the Bible speaks about, which will be the eternal dwelling place for all those who are followers of Jesus Christ And in a sense, even as here, it says this one was born there and it was recorded and registered. God has a record and a register of those who are part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. For you and I, there's that much greater picture. The Bible speaks of this in the New Testament. Galatians 4 says it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the other by the free woman. He was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh and he of the free woman according to the promise which things are, he says, symbolic. For there are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, he says, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. That is spiritual bondage because they rejected Christ. But the Jerusalem from above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, our children of promise so in a sense we may say spiritually we are all children those of us who know jesus christ of jerusalem we're born of jerusalem but born of the new jerusalem from the spirit and the power of god that comes from on high to prepare us who becomes the mother of us all hebrews 10 says you've come to mount sion and the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels The church of the firstborn who are, look what he says, Hebrews 10, registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men who've been made perfect or complete to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things, better things. 
And in the same way, God registered and recorded those who were a part of natural Jerusalem. Here's the better news. God has registered and recorded all those who are children of the new Jerusalem, the eternal heavenly Jerusalem that one day will come and that we'll dwell in together with our Lord forever because our name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. God is a register. God has a record. And your registration is reserved if your trust is in Jesus Christ. And that's why he says both the singers and the players, the worshipers, say all my springs, that is my refreshing fountains of life, are in you. Now, again, he was saying that of the Jerusalem presently, but again, how much more is that true that our refreshing fountain of life is of the new Jerusalem, the things of the Spirit, where we bring refreshment into our lives. And even again, Zechariah 14 describes these beautiful streams of life that will come forth from the city of Jerusalem, even when Christ reigns there. Psalm 88, and we're going to move through it quickly, and you'll see why in a minute, is basically probably the most depressing psalm in the Bible. So I figured a few minutes of depression at the end of the study was probably the best way to go about doing that, and then we can go back to worshiping the Lord. But Psalm 88 is a contemplation, it says, of a man named Heman, the Ezraite. Now, Heman, when you go back and research him in the Old Testament, he was an incredibly godly man. He was a man of great wisdom. He had great musical gifts. He is a man who's acknowledged for having kids who loved and worshiped the Lord. So this is a man who loved the Lord. He was a godly man. He was very wise. He was recognized for his great wisdom. But yet he goes through some pretty heavy depresso feelings in his heart and mind. I mean, the mood of discouragement and depression in the psalm is so evident in what he's going through. You know, one commentator said, there were time, there's a time in my life when the only place in the word of God I could find any comfort was from Psalm 88 because I realized I'm not the only person who's felt like that. That's an interesting insight. The only place in the whole Bible, the most depressing Psalm in all the book of Psalms, that, well, oh, okay, at least I'm still normal. You mean other men have felt that low? Other men have felt that confused and discouraged? And again, it's an expression of that very thing. Look what he says. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. That word cry literally speaks of like a, like, like a, a, a shriek of, of anguish, not just praying. The idea is in anguish. I'm crying out because of what he was undergoing day and night. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Lord, please hear my cry with what's going on. And then look what he begins to say. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe someday you will relate to this. Verse three, for my soul, he doesn't say is having a bit of trouble. You see what he says? My translation says my soul is full of troubles. My inward man, my soul. Again, the soul speaks of the consciousness, the mind, the emotions, you know, our spirit, we're spirit, soul, and body. We're an inferior trinity, God's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're created in God's image and likeness. We are a trichotomy, it seems, in the way God's created us. We are an eternal spirit within a physical body, a tent, and we have a soul or a consciousness, which is our will and our mind and our emotions. And so when the Bible speaks of the soul, oftentimes it's speaking of that of the mind, the thoughts, the emotions, the consciousness. And he says, Lord, my inward person, my soul 
It's full of troubles. I'm so troubled within. I'm a troubled man, he says to him. And my life draws near to the grave. I feel like I'm about to die. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength. So he says, Lord, I feel like I'm sinking into a deeper, darker pit in where I'm at right now. I'm like a man, he says, I feel like I don't even have strength to handle this anymore. Adrift among the dead, like the slain, notice like, metaphor, like the slain in the grave, whom you remember no more and who are cut off from your hand. The idea of being cut off from your hand means to be separated from God's helping hand, the idea is. Lord, I feel like I'm going down into a pit. I feel like I'm just like everybody else who's been cut off through death. And I feel like that your helping hand and care is no longer involved in my life. I just, I'm spinning out of control here, Lord. He says, verse six, you've laid me, interesting, you. He feels like ultimately, God, you've allowed this to happen to me. You've laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. Lord, I feel like I'm under the heavy weight of your anger and displeasure because of what I've done. And you've afflicted me with all your waves. The picture there is like the breakers at the ocean waves. You know, you don't want to get trapped in the breakers, they say, when you're surfing and just keep crashing on top of you and you can't get out of them and you feel like they're going to drown you. That's the idea. Lord, I feel like I'm drowning here. I feel like I'm stuck in the breakers. And like, I just cannot get out of them. Just one on top of the other is crashing on top of me and I can't get out from under the weight of something that's out of my control, just crashing one after another on top of me. You've put away all my acquaintances, my friends. Lord, it's like you've separated them all from me. You've put everybody that once was close to me out of my life, and you've made me an abomination to them. The idea is, Lord, they don't even want anything to do with me anymore. They just completely turned away. They're disgusted by who I am now. I am shut up, he says, verse 8. And I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. And notice verse 80 describes, I'm shut up and I cannot get out. The idea is he's saying, I feel trapped. Ever felt like that? Lord, this is going on and the the discouragement, the depression, all these troubles. and, And on top of it, Lord, I feel like I'm in this pit. And Lord, I just feel like I can't get out of this. Right? You talk to people sometimes that struggle emotionally or mentally and and they, I, just, I don't know how to get myself out of this. Normal. Happens to people sometimes. This was a godly man. And he said, I, I, just, I can't get out of this. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm just in this dark pit, and I feel trapped and stuck. Lord, I've called upon you, he says, verse 9. Daily, Lord, daily I'm calling upon you. Now, that, that he was doing what was right. That's the way you get out of the pit. You pray your way out of it. Lord, I've called upon you daily. I've stretched out my hands to you. He realizes, Lord, I can't dig myself out of this. I can't climb out of this. Lord, like somebody stuck in a pit, he's putting his hand up. Lord, pull me out of the pit, please. You know, sometimes that's not a bad place to be. Lord, I need you to pull me out of this pit that I'm in. I'm stretching my hand up. I'm helpless. Will you work wonders for the dead, he says? Shall the dead arise and praise you? The idea is he feels like that. He's done like he's going to die. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in a place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known, he says, in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? So, I mean, this psalmist genuinely feels like his life is going to end. 
I mean, it, it looks that dark. It looks that dismal, the outcome. And again, understand when we read the Old Testament, as we've said before, from an Old Testament perspective, a lot of the Old Testament saints did not have the degree of light and understanding and revelation that we're privileged to have through the gospel and through the revelation of the spirit and the light of the glorious gospel through Jesus Christ. So it was a bit foggy to them, this idea of the afterlife and Sheol and what happened. And so you can't always take doctrine from the Old Testament in regards to their perspective of the dead, because Paul says in the New Testament that light and, and life and immortality came to light through the gospel. You know, we understand things of the afterlife in ways that the Old Testament saints didn't always grasp. So it was a little bit foggy to them. But the one thing is clear, this psalmist thinks, I'm done. It, it's just over. In his mind, I mean, you can see his, his terms there. Lord, will you work wonders for the dead, the grave, destruction, dark? That's it. I mean, he genuinely felt that things were that catastrophic that it was going to end in just complete destruction and you know sometimes we may find ourselves in a place where it literally looks that dark that difficult where it looks like there is no escape and no way out and there is what we would say a feeling of complete hopelessness complete helplessness people can go there mentally and emotionally it can happen to us verse 13 he says but to you here's the one thing the psalmist kept doing right to you, he comes back to again, I've cried out, O Lord. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. The one thing he did do is every morning that he woke up and he was still alive and he wasn't dead yet, he turned to God again. Doesn't mean his feelings went away. Doesn't mean his depression went right away. Doesn't mean his discouragement went away. Doesn't mean his bad situation went away. But he says, but every day, God, you're still there in the morning. And the one thing he understood, Lord, in the morning, my prayer is going to come before you. I'm going to get up. I love Psalm 5. We read a while back where the psalmist says, in the morning, I will direct my voice to you and I will look up. The idea is an expectation. First thing, up in the morning, coffee pot, talk to God. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right order, but I just find the coffee pot helps me talk to God better. If not, I rest in the Lord like you do if you get up. So, Direct your voice to the Lord, no matter what's going on. He says, Lord, in the morning, my prayer comes before you. And then he says, verse 14, again, you could tell he's just back and forth. Why do you cast off my soul? Lord, I feel like you've abandoned me. Again, doesn't mean God did, but he, he genuinely felt like that. Why do you hide your face from me, Lord? I feel like you're not looking upon my situation. Verse 15, I've been afflicted and ready to die for my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day like water. They engulfed me. Again, there's a picture. It's like being engulfed by water and drowning. They've engulfed me all together. Now, again, look at verse 15. I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. Afflicted means suffering. Lots of different ways we can be afflicted with different kinds of suffering and pain. He, in essence, says in verse 15, I have been suffering, and he says, I have been ready to die since I've been a boy. That's somebody who's really down and out. I have been suffering, he says, and I have been ready to die ever since I was a youth. And I tell you something, folks, there are people walking around today who have been suffering 
for a long period of time in their life with different things. And there are people who are, have just day by day, they're getting by one through day, day at a time. And they would say the same, you know, from my youth, from my youth, I've been struggling and suffering. And I, I honestly have been ready. If it was up to me, I've been ready to die since I was a boy just to get out of it all because it just hurts and it's hard. And there are people that struggle in this way. And here the psalmist admits his own honest struggles. He says, I, I've been struggling with this since my childhood. He says, verse 18, loved one and friend you have put far from me. And he says, and my acquaintances into darkness. So again, you notice what he describes there on top of other things. My loved ones and my friends you've put far from me. Lord, you've allowed me to be forsaken by my loved ones, my, my, my family, my friends. You, I feel like that they've abandoned me and I've been forsaken by them. And that's painful. That's hard. And he says to add on top of that, the end of the psalm, he says, and my acquaintances into the darkness. The language literally seems to indicate there that darkness has now become my new friend. <laughs> Lord, you've taken every good thing out of my life. I've been abandoned by everyone who I thought loved me. And he says, and I feel like now my best friend is living in the dark all the time. That that's my constant companion and acquaintance is just living in constant darkness. But I'll tell you something. Sometimes, though nobody appreciates these occasions, sometimes it is the lowest points in our lives that lead to some of the greatest spiritual revelations in all of our lives. Right? That's what Paul spoke about. Paul, when he wrote at the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, at my, at my first occasion when I stood trial, he said, no one stood with me. Everybody forsook me. And then Paul says this, but the Lord stood with me. The Lord stood with me. And Paul, at one of the hardest, lowest points of his life, when he was all alone and he was dealing with the hardest times in his life, he says, nobody else was there but the Lord was and the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me. And Paul learned of the faithfulness of the Lord that he would never leave him and never forsake him. And he'd be a constant companion in the hardest, darkest dungeons and hours of his life. And you know, sometimes the hard, dark times are what allow us to discover those great spiritual revelations about the Lord. I don't want to sign up for these kind of feelings any more than the psalmist did or than you do but sometimes they lead to some of the greatest revelations of our Lord. Let's stand together and pray.